Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of On My Mind. Today I'm joined by Dr. Craig Joyce who is a professional working with children who have experienced adverse childhood experiences. We're going to be talking about what is an adverse childhood experience and how that will impact us as we move into adulthood. So you can expect to hear all sorts of different things. We meander through different topics around relationships, around schooling, parenting, all that kind of stuff. Um, I would encourage you to really listen to this one because there are some really powerful um, insights in there that I think are useful for everyone and not least highlighting that we all have a role to play in making children safe in the world. Um, The bit that stood out for me was a bit towards the end where we talk about how the impact of our childhood uh, can affect our relationships going forwards in our lives. So I definitely encourage you to listen to that. Um, Craig's a great guy. We have a really nice conversation. He's also got a top accent as well. So uh, tune in, enjoy um, and let me know what you think. The only thing I could liken it to is like being hit by a truck. It's like a moment in my mind that's not that's been erased now because it was quite a traumatic experience. One human is amazingly complex. You add a second human and try to have a relationship and how complicated things get. Suddenly I feel like all of my history was a lie. There's nothing wrong with you. Right? You're not bad or wrong or broken or, you know, stuck. And it's all healable. People's stories have the power to transform the way we see the world and the way we experience our lives. I'm your host, Adam, and I'll be guiding you on this journey. So sit back, relax, and find out this week what is on my mind. Just before we begin, it's worth noting that this episode includes themes around child abuse, domestic violence and post-traumatic stress disorder. So as always, take care of yourselves when listening. I read a book years ago, it was called, I think it was called Finding Your Own North Star. And she talks about your social self and your essential self. And your essential self is the stuff that you think you 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 really should be doing that kind of feeds your soul. And your social self is the thing that says, I should probably... I, you know, I would like to do that, but I can't because actually I want to have a career and money is important to me and success and and um, reputation and what people think of me. But sometimes I think you need, you know, you, you, I'm sure you posted something maybe about a year ago, a couple of years ago. I remember it was about, you posted a tarot card, you picked the lightning struck tower and mm-hmm. it was, um, and what I thought was interesting about that is actually sometimes I think you have to have a complete sort of unraveling where your familiar structures are just totally blown apart for you to then re- regrow or, or have some kind of rebirth, I suppose. But my, I was thinking about, you know, why I decided to be an educational psychologist and it was because my mum died. And I remember dad had said to me, you know, I kind of want you to do something that you really want to do that she'd want you to do. What would that be? And I said, I want to go back and I want to do more training. I want to be a psychologist. That's what I wanted to do. But I always had this thing of putting it off thinking that it wasn't possible. And it took like a really big event for me to think, right, I'm going to seize that and use that as a change process. It's strange, isn't it? Mm, it sort of almost gives permission, I think, to reassess and to realign. And, and sometimes it does, like you say, have to, to take you, to shake you to your foundations, especially when it's things like loss, bereavement. It's as well, and, isn't it? Yeah, pain, I think, can give birth to fresh growth. Um, yeah. I don't think there's no, any such thing as... It's, and it seems like a cliche, that, doesn't it? Yeah, like, it does. You have, to be, you have to be through pain to regrow and be stronger. But actually, there is kind of 
something in that that is not ridiculous you know it actually is true yeah. yeah all the cliches come in I think when you've been on a bit of a journey and even saying when you've been on a journey sounds a bit cliche in itself but I don't think I don't think it means that just because I don't think it's because you've had a journey means that you're done with it though I, I always think it's a I always think it's going to be a work in progress because when you look at you know your foundations of what you believe to be true and knowledge and relativism and realism and all that kind of stuff um you do get to the point a lot of time where you think oh god i really believed that because of social constructs or doctrine or whatever and i still find it uncomfortable i don't think i'm ever going to be at peace with that i can't imagine it at the moment anyway it's uncomfortable generally i think you're right i think getting into psychology or any sort of um occupation that's to do with the mind it's like going down the rabbit hole and i've i'm just trying to get comfortable with being uncomfortable that's a work in progress i think it'd be a life's work people love you know medicalized definitions of things they've got adhd they've got autism they've got tourette's they've got you know trauma they've got an attachment disorder they love the labels make people feel really comfortable don't they because Mm. it's like i know what it is it's yeah. like well but do you do you really know what that is or the term autism is just a collective noun for lots of different things that people have gotten together and say ah let's call it autism you know mm. it's you know, I think people love that sense of knowing you know I can see why I can see why people enjoy doing maths or physics or something like that because they get a, a right or a wrong answer and that's comfortable psychology is not like that at all I think to go into this field, if you're going to be a psychologist or a psychotherapist, you're going to be interested in root cause, aren't you? You're going to be interested in the unraveling and the digging and the analysis and and unpicking. So let's get into this then, shall we? We're going to be talking about adverse childhood experiences because um, just to set the scene, one of the reasons why I was so passionate about when we sort of started talking and you said that you'd be happy to come on and and do a, a podcast the, the whole idea is about helping people understand what hurt in the first place. Um, it's about we are where we are. We've got the behaviours that we've got. But I think certainly speaking for myself, I had a lot of a sense of empowerment when I understood that, oh, that's why I'm like this. Oh, that's why I behave in that way. That doesn't necessarily mean that it solves it. It doesn't necessarily mean that that in and of itself changes the behaviour. Yeah. But understanding where those behaviors came from in the first place I think can be really empowering for somebody to realize that um, I read a quote the other day and it said we need to stop asking people what's wrong with them and start asking them what happened what asking them what happened to them Um, and that's where this this piece of kind of adverse childhood experience research comes in and I think can answer a lot of questions about people's behaviors so why don't you start by giving us an introduction to yourself and tell us who you are, what you do. Okay, so I am Dr. Craig Joyce. I'm an educational and child psychologist. Um, I did a, I was originally an English teacher. I trained as a, as a teacher about 10, 10, 11 years ago and had always had an interest in the behaviours, I suppose, of the young people that I was seeing in the classes that I taught in. I think a lot of the time the school system is we're obsessed with behavior, you know, controlling behavior. What is behavior? Why does it happen? And um, teachers become obsessed with this kind of notion of, you know, control, having to control behavior. And I always find that as a teacher, you're never given enough time to be able to sort of unpick 
some of what is going on for some of the young people, huge swathe of young people that you come into contact with. So I decided to train as a psychologist. I went back and did my master's degree at the University of Manchester. That was followed by a PhD in the psychology of education. So I was interested in it looking at preventative um, programs, called preventative programs, which are designed to um, bolster the men mental health and well-being, I suppose, of children and young people and help uh, teachers and parents to feel more sort of empowered to help work with mental health difficulties but found that the original reasoning for me going into psychology was I wanted to be a practitioner so I was kind of drawn off a little bit for a good three years or so into doing research and still had that hankering to want to be a practitioner so I retrained well added on, I suppose, to my PhD and did a doctorate in educational and child psychology. So it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? You know, doctor, doctor, I feel like. A, yeah. <laughs> so I ended up doing a double doctorate, which was six brutal years of, of, of thesis and research. But it's, um, but I think it's, I would say having been a practitioner and researcher combined has probably made me better at what I'm doing now. But um, yeah, so the, the my interest, I suppose, as a practitioner psychologist is is in the seeking to understand the why and how children are in the place that they're in. So where teachers are always looking to try and control behavior, my sort of interest is why has that occurred in the first place? But like the iceberg, you know, you're seeing that that little bit that pops at the top, but there's this huge underpinning that all all behavior is communication and it's telling us something about how that young person is feeling and we really need to seek to understand how young people are feeling as opposed to understanding i think if we understand their feelings first then we can we can start to to kind of work on the behaviors um but i suppose over the last couple of years i'm i've always been quite drawn to developmental and relational trauma um i think you'd be very surprised, I suppose, of how many young people have experienced developmental trauma. It's, you know, Public England, uh, Public Health England and Wales, I think they roughly say about half the UK population have probably experienced something called an ACE or an ACE, an adverse childhood experience at some point in their life. One in 10 children have experienced four or more. And what we know is when you look at, into research like developmental cascades or cumulative risk, is that the more risk factors that we have in our lives, generally the worse our mental health outcomes are as, they, as, as we get older. So it's really, really important, I think. I suppose I feel quite hopeful working with, with young people that this is the kind of a good playing field to be able to, to sort of help children at this early stage where their early experiences are so formative into the, to the people that they become when they're older. So you've used a couple of um, a bit of lingo there in terms of yeah, yeah, uh, develop, jog, developmental jog, trauma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to, just give a definition of of maybe what is developmental trauma, maybe a few examples, just so people can understand what that's about. So, so developmental trauma would be a term which is separate from what we tend to understand as post-traumatic stress. So post-traumatic stress happens when we have a incident which causes us to go into a really dysregulated state. So when we say when we're dysregulated, it means that we lose, we might lose control of our bodies, we might dissociate where we feel kind of shut off from our kind of conscious experience, we might 
they used to say the term kind of came around originally from it was first noticed around soldiers in the war. They came back from war and they were called they were called shell shocked. And over time, we developed this understanding of post-traumatic stress and how victims, I suppose, of that would continue to suffer or have flashbacks or hypnagogic regressions, if you want to use that term, for years, sometimes afterwards. So they don't heal in a, in a conventional way. It's a cycle that repeats itself. But what we now know over the last, I would say, the last couple of decades of research in 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 children and young people is that we call something called developmental trauma when young people experience trauma consistently as they grow up through the lifespan so that might look like you know a young person who has been subjected over a number of years to witnessing or experiencing domestic violence or living in an environment where they've been emotionally abused or they've been made to feel worthless um physical neglect where they're not their their basic or their essential needs are not being met so where they're not being fed properly they're you know they're then soiling themselves and their beds aren't being changed you know things that are just they become very unkept um and what we know is is that the the more of these experiences that we have tend to be the, the worse the outcomes are in the long run so we know that were drawn particularly in my field to look after children they are either they've been taken away from their parents or something has happened to their parents but they generally have um experiences lived experiences that can be very very difficult and a lot of that is around these aces that they might have experienced so i mean you you mentioned a few there and I, I I did have a list in front of me, and it's obviously disappeared because that's what happens when you need something. But um, the adverse childhood experiences, which which you're referring to as aces, one of them you mentioned was um, sort of witnessing domestic violence, which is um, I suppose something that as a as a therapist I I come up against um, quite a lot in my practice. And a lot of people firstly don't understand what domestic violence is, but could you explain to us what sort of an impact? a child what impact it has on a child to witness domestic violence and that could be uh, uh, from my understanding just just watching parents argue all the time so hearing shouting mm. behind closed doors uh, raised voices that kind of thing what yeah, what's the sort of longer term what's well what's a short term impact and what might be the longer term impact on on a child well the thing is that what we so the i suppose that that question kind of links to sort of why there's a wider kind of wider sort of hypotheses of what you where you might be coming from of how that might affect a young person so in the early sort of 1970s you'd be looking into what we call attachment the psychology of attachment john bolby mary ainsworth looked at our attachment patterns with our caregivers how that shaped our experience of um our relationship with adults and partners as we get older still think it's very relevant but a lot of the time children who've experienced attachment difficulties, which is that where you have a synchronous bond or you should have a synchronous bond with a caregiver. So an example of this would be those to try and describe to people that don't know what attachment is. might be that I was in the car, you know, maybe a couple of months ago and I watched, I was in traffic and there was a traffic lights and this mother had a toddler and the toddler was kind of tottering away in front of her and um, looked very kind of confident and there was a a guy came around the corner and he was walking a dog and the young person 
he turned round, tossed it straight back to mum and took her hand. And for me, as a as a picture snapshot, that is what a secure what we would call in a secure attachment relationship is. That that young person feels they're safe to secure, safe and secure to go and explore the world, but they know that there's a safe base there for them. What happens when children experience trauma? So, for example, domestic violence or um, or sexual abuse or you know anything like that is um, is that we 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 have things called ruptures. We have ruptures in our attachment relationships, and and anybody who's had a parental relationship knows that our our experiences often about rupture and repair. So we fall out with our parents. They say, you know, the ideal relationship is that I'm still here, I still love you, I'm still available, everything is okay, let's continue our relationship. But what happens is, is a lot of the time when these ruptures occur, young people, their, their schema, which is how they see the world, you know, Piaget, you know, early developmental psychology said that our young people develop these blueprints for how they communicate with adults and understand society based on our earliest lived experiences and that is usually through our caregivers or our parents so if a young person for example witnesses domestic violence all the time you know they either witness it or they experience it their logic model i suppose is that they love their caregiver but their caregiver treats them harshly or inconsistently. Therefore, the value that they place on themselves is that I'm unlovable, um, I, um, I'm bad. You know, if I'm being punished by somebody I love, I must be bad. And that they then <clears throat> take that blueprint to other adults so they think all adults might be inconsistent or mistreating of me or harsh or believe that i'm unlovable so that that early sort of attachment relationship through that can be shaped through trauma creates difficulties with teachers with partners as we get older does that kind of answer that a little bit yeah and and to, to expand on that if if i'm right the reason why the child who's mistreated by a parent will internalize that as there being something wrong with them is because in in the child's mind the parent's have to be faultless because they are responsible for looking after them that's right so that's so, so the child has to see their caregiver as as a god if you like um and so will shoulder all any fault in the in the caregiver will be internalized by the child and that's why um and, and it leads to that low self-worth because it, it, it internalizes as there's something wrong with me which is yes. why i'm not getting the the love exactly. and affection off my caregiver exactly or I expect I expect my caregiver to be inconsistent, you know. Therefore, everyone will be inconsistent with me. But you were asking about how developmental trauma occurs, and if you look, for instance, at the work of Dr. Bruce Perry, for example, he talks about the neurosequential model of trauma. And what we know is is that traumatic experiences happen tend to happen on three different levels. Well, he talks about the fact that relational trauma requires relational repair. So what we know is is that our, our most primitive brain experiences from our brain, so for our reptilian brain, so that's the, the part of the back of our, our neck here, and that is part of our autonomic response. So, you know, us talking right now, we're breathing, we're blinking, where I'm perceiving things all around me all the time that are... Um, a potential threat so I'm, I'm even on a subconscious level I'm, I'm clocking my environment around me 
but I'm obviously feeling safe and feeling secure. I'm at home, so I'm I'm regulated. So then within, I sometimes use a brain, a hand model for this, but we've got then inside our brains, we've got something called our limbic system. And our limbic system is connected to our emotional, it's our emotional experience and our emotional memory. It's on a little um, gland called the amygdala. It's about the size of a walnut. And that sits right inside our, our brain. And that is the part where our emotional experience and our emotional memory linked to our hippocampus is created. Now, when babies are born, that emotional response, their limbic systems are fully developed. But this prefrontal cortex, the most developed part of our brain around the front, is the bit that develops last. So the ability to have higher order thinking, to have cogni you know, cognition skills, problem solving, the use of language, all those things come later. We are hardwired from infants to respond to the emotional information that we are given. So that synchronous bond, you know, that attachment relationship where parents are going, boo, 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 boo. you know, they do this mother ease, they do this baby kind of talk, they, there's lots of eye contact. It creates a synchronicity, you know, a synchronous relationship between uh, parents and their care and, and, their, and their infants that help that young person to feel secure. Now, what we know is, is that in that when that attachment relationship goes awry, children are constantly in a hyper-stimulated state. So, you know, those brainstem responses and that limbic system um, are constantly in excitation. So you might find that when you're trying to talk to a young person about something that's upsetting them, they can't focus on what you're saying because they're scanning for threats. They hear a door slam and they 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 feel at risk straight away. So we know in terms of developmental trauma, we have to focus on how to help children feel soothed to begin with, or how to make them feel safe, or how to reduce sensory overload before we start talking to them about what those problems are. So it works kind of in sequence, but it's uh, it's harder to repair than it is for a young person to experience trauma in the first place. We're hardwired for survival. So, so we could say a caregiver's responsibility, first and foremost, is to create a safe environment for the child. Absolutely, um, yeah. and to help that child regulate themselves if they are if they feel um, in any way threatened at any point. Scared. So, say for example, yeah, scared yeah. to to help the child make sense of what's happening to them, but to also sort of settle them down back into a a regular state. But if that's yeah. absent. Or if the opposite exists in the house, so say for example, there is, uh, there's shouting, there's violence, yeah. there's yeah. there's caregivers that are, are um, misusing substances, for example, and they're not able to provide that level of safety for that child. What you're saying is the child will grow up to think the world is unsafe, and so therefore I need to be hyper vigilant and looking out for threat the whole time. But that's not necessarily something that they that happens consciously. It just yeah. happens because they're trying to survive in a chaotic world. That's it, it's a, that's it exactly. It's, um, it's our survival response is, is we are primed to self, you might've heard the, you know, that phrase before about self-preservation is key. You know, self-preservation is key. And, and that, is, is, that is what it comes down to is that when the chips are down, you know, every organism on earth fights for its own survival and humans are no different from that. We may have, well-developed uh, neocortexes that have given us language and higher order thinking skills and you know have, have helped us evolve but we are still essentially 
primed to act like an animal in terms of when we feel at risk or we feel unsafe. And that's a funny thing, really, isn't it? Because we're on one level, we're we kind of had these expectations of young people just to be okay. But actually, there's a constant push pull between, well, actually, I don't feel safe. So what I'm constantly saying to teachers, for example, or parents is that there is absolutely no point focusing on literacy or numeracy or whatever you want to get through in the curriculum if that young person is not feeling okay and they don't feel safe or they don't feel loved in that environment is that they're just not going to be able to focus and and and, and get what you you want to get out of them and I, I mean yeah I don't want to get political but I think that's part of the part of the problem of our education system at the moment I think is that we're focusing so much on we focus so much on the academic side of things that we're forgetting that a lot of children don't feel okay when they when they come to school. Actually, it's a marvel sometimes that some children get to school at all, you know, with their with their lived experience. So I suppose joining up the dots there, if you've got a child that's had this sort of developmental trauma growing up, so they've not they've not understood how to regulate themselves to feel safe, mm. they then come into a classroom environment where there is pressure to perform, which is sort of adding a perceived threat, really. So that yeah. what you're saying is the, the part of the brain that's responsible for rational thinking, problem solving math science that kind of thing it is sort of offline a lot of the time or significantly reduced in activity and the amygdala part which is responsible for the fight flight responses is sort of activated and yeah, so yeah I, I suppose that sort of links in with and you will work with some of these labels like adhd and, mm. and i was reading a book called the body keeps a score the other day and he was he's a psychiatrist the guy that wrote that book and he he's got a bit of beef about those those labels because he's mm. essentially saying to to label a child with ADHD without understanding that child's history is is a real miss. Do, do you have an opinion on that? That you're I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely in in line with with his thinking. I think it's um it's one of the key tenets, I suppose, of my of my work that I'm constantly having to help reframe um reframe how people think about children with difficulties and adults with difficulties, I suppose, to, you know, to, to a large degree. But when you're looking at um, children that, you know, for example, if you're looking at that, we call it that neurosequential model of trauma, you might be looking at a young person in class who can't sit still. So they're constantly, you know, they're moving around, they're hyperstimulated, they need movement breaks, they're getting out their chairs, they, their postures, they're shifting their posture all the time, they're fiddlers, they're biting the skin around their fingers, you know, all these things which are suggesting to me that that, that young person is not feeling comfortable in that environment. Now, through the gaze or the lens of ADHD, you would be looking at that young person and saying, ah, that young person is hyperstimulated, they're hyperactive, they're impulsive, they've probably got ADHD. And the issue with that is, is that we often fail to acknowledge the, the well, I use a term called comorbidities. So that's a, that's a term where you, one presenting set of symptoms is largely crossed over with another. So for example, attachment, when I was talking about attachment before, some of the difficulties with children that we might regard as being insecurely attached often present in the same way that children with autism do. So 
there's been a, a, a lot of young people over the last decade, and it's been a lot more acknowledged now, which I think is a good thing, is we often have uh, had misdiagnoses of children with autism when actually they have had real relational or traumatic experiences going on at home and that diagnosis is just not appropriate so what i am what i am often doing when i'm speaking to my colleagues in you know clinical psychology or in pediatrics i'm saying we have to look at what this young person's lived experience is like if everything else really adds up and you know and if they if they if they are really secure at home and things are really good and they have you know there are no obvious presenting reasons to why they might be like that okay maybe we'll you know have a, have a look at that presentation but i think unless you seek to understand the lived experience of young people that you are coming into contact with those diagnoses like autism and adhd are either inappropriate but they can also be dangerous you consider that you know that's a, the, the big labels, the strong labels to have, you know, for a, for a lifetime, and they reshape how young people think about themselves and and how other people think about them. And I think if we're not aware of ACEs, for example, and and some of the things that are going on, parents will often, you know, think it's either themselves and they'll blame themselves for it, or they'll go down the road of thinking, ah, it's ADHD, ah, it's autism, it's Tourette's, it's, it's, it's you know, because there's a comfort, isn't there, in giving it a name or giving it a label because it takes away that uncomfortable feeling that we might be responsible for it or that we have a part to play in that labels to kind of take that away, don't they? Yeah, I'm always interested in labels and the the reason why people want them. And I think in in some ways, yes, it can give people comfort. But talking in in this context, I suppose that could be it could actually be dangerous for a child to because with ADHD, there's a lot there's medication out there to medicate symptoms. And actually, if you're not understanding the history of that child, you could be maintaining a dangerous environment for them at home by just medicating a symptom so I suppose as you said mindful not to get sort of too political um but I suppose it's a yeah I mean but you're right when you're looking at drugs like methamphenidate which most commonly people would know as has been something like Ritalin all children who would be prescribed methamphenidate would improve their concentration and their focus all children so it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't actually know if they were ADHD or not because the drug that you're giving them would improve your concentration or mine in the same way that it would improve a young person. So that so that um, that diagnostic, I suppose, procedure of how they go about looking for it, the medication is sometimes you know wholly inappropriate, but it would have the same effect on any child. So how would you know? But this this brings us to sort of what we were talking about before um, before we started recording the podcast about our obsession with medicalizing things in the West, and mm-hmm. it seems like if it doesn't fit in a neat box that can have a you know a diagnosis and a treatment, if it requires sort of more exploration, i.e., more resource, we seem to sort of want to steer away from that. And I could perhaps get on a bit of a high horse about the reasons behind that. But what I'm sort of hearing and the things that I've read about adverse childhood experiences and these diagnoses is that we're not kind of we're not serving the children, are we, that we're we're meant to kind of be looking after um, by missing their history? No, we're not. And the thing is, is that there's I mean, there's it's the you know, we need to we have to be 
conscious, I suppose, of the it's a it's it's a complex issue. It's a very complex issue, and um, because we're not just talking about you might be talking about more than one adverse child experience. You're talking about things that might have happened over a number of years. You also need to take into account um, what we call uh, protective factors. You know, so things that help us repair or things that help us. Um, I think of it sometimes a bit like scales. So the, you know, the more uh, aces I suppose you have on one side, the scales will tend to to tip. But what we what we want to do is to try and pile as many protective factors on, I suppose, on on this side to help balance that that system out. And what we often see is that I think the more aware people are of these things going on, the more empowered that they feel to be able to to prevent them, or if not prevent them, negate help negate them. You know, so helping a young person feel like they've got, you know, a secure, trusted adult that they can speak to on a regular basis for them to feel like they're not hungry all the time to um, make parents aware that if shouting is going on in the home all the time, the effect that that might be having on, on you know, on children. And I don't I don't think as a society, I don't think that we are I don't think that we're that conscious of that all the time. And maybe it's because. You know, parents that are having difficult times as well are stuck in their own lived experience and they're not they're not seeking to understand what that is having what effect that is having on their children mm. um i've got it in front of me now a, a, mm. a, a source from public health england and it talks about people who a uk study suggested that those who have got four or more aces so four people that have got had had experience of four more adverse childhood experiences yeah. um, are two times more likely to have a poor diet three yeah. times more likely to smoke mm-hmm. five times more likely to have had sex under the age of 16 years yeah. and six times more likely to have been pregnant so uh, and I know that there's other statistics around sort of like a, a significantly increased risk of depression and anxiety diabetes and cancer as well yeah yeah so this is this is not just about behavioral stuff in in adulthood these these adverse childhood experiences that we're we're sort of not it's not in the public it is in the public domain but it's certainly not in the uh the public consciousness let's say mm. have real real negative impacts on on an adult's life as they grow up and and become yeah adults. huge hugely impactful and i think the i think what we all have to be aware of and is whether we have children or not to be honest is the effect that society and the system you know that think of things on a systems level it's not just about uh it's not just about that one individual it's about how they are interacting with their community how um the role of even just the role of friendships and and the role of being you know silly things like just being a good neighbor you know um being aware of actually the the impact that aces have on all of us because the cost to society for children who have had those kind of really difficult early lived experiences are like you were saying you know it's got it's a huge impact on our health system it's a massive impact on a lot of the time on our justice system you know the because a lot of the time young people who have experienced those um, adverse childhood experiences will go can go on i mean i don't like to talk about things too deterministically because they can change but often they will be drawn into drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohols are can often be connected to to crime. You know, feeding that feeding that habit. I mean, the fact is, is that things like uh, smoking or um, 
alcohol use or other forms of drug use are forms of coping. It's a coping strategy, isn't it? We're using we're using substances like that to cope with a lived experience of feeling inadequate or unloved or or um, dealing with difficult emotions that we've internalized over you know a long period of time that are going to bubble out in other ways. So that impact on you know the some of the early research when you look into preventative research is that the more that you you work at this age, you know, that young age, is that it is actually saving society, you know, not just money, but, you know, on a, on a lot of different levels, that impact later on is huge. And we talked, we had a conversation before, didn't we, about you working with adults. And I said, I was always drawn to working with children and, and teenagers, because I felt hopeful, I suppose, that I still think in those formative stages, you you can see change quicker. Whereas I, I might have a misheld belief that I think adults, we, we, we have things that are there that we've buried over and we've got complexes and ways of coping that we've, that we've developed over a long period of time that we do to protect ourselves. I think that's harder to unpick by the time we're adults. I, I definitely agree. I think I think by the time that you've got an ingrained pattern of behaviour, it can certainly be challenging. It's It's... I can attest to the fact that it's not impossible. Um, but I think what this, what this, there's a couple of things for me. This, this whole research area around adverse childhood experiences highlights how important it is that we, we need to start thinking about the impact of our behavior as adults on children, um, both as caregivers and as a society. Um, and I would personally like to see ACEs profile raised and I know uh, and we might be able to talk a little bit later on about ways that we can all contribute to kind of being there for for the children in our society yeah the reason why I thought it would be useful for my listeners um to to hear about adverse childhood experiences is because often often I'll hear in the therapy room yeah yeah that happened when I was a child but you know things were different back then and it was acceptable to hit our Mm, children mm. it was acceptable you know parents were stressed back then and and just because the research is only of the last two decades, it doesn't mean that the research was was not valid before that time. Or you st- or you couldn't still feel ashamed for being bashed in public or for feeling yeah. I hear that a lot. Exactly. I do, I do hear this a lot. It's a but like nails on a chalkboard to me, to be honest. I hear that I hear that a lot from people saying, Oh, but you know, it was it was the time parents didn't know how to parent that well they're just doing and I do believe that a lot of time parents are just doing the best that they can or they're just doing the best that they know how to do with the tools that they have but it doesn't change the fact that the impact that their behaviors you know can have on their kids regardless of what time we were living in yeah exactly and and what I hope from from the conversation that we're having is that people can understand that because oftentimes the behaviors that we have and the way that we are in relationships with other people and maybe some of the coping mechanisms that we've adopted can bring about their own sources of shame which is which is a a source of punishment for ourselves and we won't speak out about them yeah and this is and this is something that i talk about all the time in schools about which is an uncomfortable conversation because a lot of the time uh, schools, like we said at the beginning, they depend on behaviorist approaches to controlling what happens in a school system. But what we, what we, I feel like we know about developmental trauma is that children who have experienced um, relational developmental trauma are far more likely to feel shamed 
by a behaviorist approach because they don't disconnect themselves from what they've done. So a behavioral way of approaching when you try and work with somebody is that you probably remember you going when you were back in school, I'm sure everybody can, is times when a teacher has put their name on a board or they've given them a detention or they've shouted at them in class. And for a, not, for a neurotypical child, the, the impact of that is supposed to be guilt. So a young person is supposed to feel guilt and the guilt is the corrective action. So the guilt is what changes them to modify their behavior so then that doesn't happen again. But for children who've experienced developmental trauma, the, the punishment or the negativity that's, that's given to them from that practitioner, they equate to themselves. So what they hear is, what they're hearing is, I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm a disgrace. I am, you know, unworthy. I'm unlovable. I'm stupid. You know, those things that a, a behavioral system is designed to in, enforce that guilt response is actually having a far, far more da damaging impact. It's shaming. And there's no place for shame-based approaches when we're talking about, you know, attachment and, uh, you know, looking at emotion coaching and how we, how we go about working in a different way. It doesn't mean to say that you just accept all the behavior that is, you know, given to you i understand that you know teachers and parents have to feel like they are in control but there are ways of doing that without having to be punitive or shaming about it yeah so it sounds it sounds like a a teacher saying sort of shouting at a child in a classroom that's not had adverse childhood experiences would internalize that as i did something bad and it would yeah. trigger a social a social I, response I'm bad. yeah and I'm um, bad. yeah but but somebody that's had developmental trauma would internalize it as i'm bad I'm and bad. there's something yeah, wrong with right. me which is yeah. very different and i suppose that just sort of hammers down the shame hammers down the trauma because that would be experienced as a sort of reaffirming traumatic event um, it's an interesting thing isn't it when you hear i always think it's an interesting thing when you hear parents parents often say this to me about their kids that shout the kids are shouting, kids are aggressive. And then you sometimes observe what that dynamic is like. And you hear parents or teachers shouting at children. And I think, well, even if you take it back to basics and you look at social modeling theory of how children might learn, depending on how what they're observed, we have to model our own, we have to model what we want to see in young people. If you shout at a young person, you're giving them permission, I think, to shout back at you. You're you're equating like with like. I think you are sometimes hear in in sometimes here in uh, research or you go to conferences. I, I heard one recently where they said when when they go high, you go low. So you know you're having to sort of reverse that. So if you if you somebody shouts at you and you shout back at them, you heighten that situation. But if you respond in a way that I can see that you're upset. I understand that you're angry. When you know, I would be angry too. That's really difficult. You know, where you are, you're beginning to you tune in, you recognize, you empathize. It has a totally different effect. But I think um, I think we we fall too comfortably into behaviorist shaming, shouty ways of enforcing. Uh, what we would perceive as being positive behavioral change. It's a strange, um, strange notion, isn't it? Why, when you think about it logically, why that, why, why you would think that would work? 
my one of my favorite expressions is without awareness there isn't choice and i suppose if as a parent you witness shouting as a as a tool to manage your family um from your caregivers then i suppose it's it's that behavioral modeling again isn't it? it's like well my mum and dad shouted at me or my you know caregivers shouted at me so that's how you could that's how you parent and so the sort of the trauma gets passed down you're talking the about traumatized systems, aren't you? Traumatized systems that just proliferate that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I think one of the saddest things I saw recently was a a a parent or, or looked to be a parent screaming at their child to get in the car, and and it frightened me. But mm. the child seemed completely not bothered by it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my sense of that was that the child was sort of disassociating in that moment to to because it couldn't cope with the level of stress it had just sort of taken himself somewhere else in his mind to to protect himself from what was actually happening because it was it was an act of violence and i suppose that's not that we don't necessarily think of it that way because you know everyone sort of says well you know kids are you know it's stressful to be a parent and all that kind of stuff and i do get that i'm not a parent myself so i i hold my hands up and say yeah it's a really tough job um but perhaps what we're highlighting in this is, is is you know no it's not just acceptable to scream at your kids because it, it can be perceived as a trauma especially if the protective factors aren't there if they don't have a safe space where they can go and regulate themselves and bring themselves back down to well you're to creating sort of a level you're creating ruptures aren't you just in that in that even in that little moment you're creating a, a, a rupture between that relationship where you're bawling at a young person to get into a car you know, you're you create you're unconsciously probably creating ruptures you're not even aware of, which is that, you know, that um, theory I suppose that early theory around attachment and where that's coming from is that we're creating ruptures all the time by by treating young people in in that way. Now, granted, I get that all parents, you know, even with the best intentions, sometimes will lose their rag with their kids. You know, they might shout at them, but it's when we're it's when that that is a continuous, pervasive experience, and it's there all the time as part of who they are. That then we we you know it's a bit like the good, the bad, and the ugly, isn't it? You know, the good is where we've got that reparation. The bad is where it might have happened and nothing happened. But the ugly is where you're stuck in that really uncomfortable place, and there's no there's no opportunity to repair or to or to get out of it. Repair is is key, I think. So talking about repair work, I'm I'm really big on empowering mm. people with the tools yeah. that they need to understand why they've got to where they've got to, who they are, and what's influenced that. So, is, is mm. there a way that people can understand their own adverse childhood experiences? Is there is there a tool? Is there a is there a measure that they can do to go in and kind of see if they're affected by these but aces? It, well, yeah. So there is an aces. There's an aces. Que- there is an aces questionnaire. You know, if you if you Google it, you know you'll you'll be able to find one but i often think that you probably don't need to be using a tool to assess whether you've had aces because if you have you probably will know but you might not have or you might not be at the stage where you've you are aware of it or that you've convinced yourself for long enough that actually it wasn't a problem so for instance you know young people that you know were might have been smacked a lot when they were kids you know, they they often hold on to those experiences is that I, you know, I was a naughty child or mum or dad were doing that because they, you know, they were just disciplining me. 
but those memories of you know being smacked in a public place have stuck with you for years and you remember it i think it's the remembering as well if that is if that has become if that's something that you've held on to for that long long period that's become part of who you are that is developmental trauma you know it's it's part of how you sh- your your relationship with people will have been shaped in some regard on those kind of experiences i think it's useful to to tap into thing to thinking about what are the things that we know keep her safe so when you know when do we feel at our best and when do we know that those things are not happening and maybe thinking back of in our experience of where things have happened where we didn't feel safe or we have felt scared or that did happen all the time you know and and you know mum and dad were arguing an awful lot or one of the parents left when they were very young and they didn't have you know lots of like i said i think most people have probably had at some point or another you know an adverse childhood experience i think you're doing i think you're doing pretty well if you've managed to if you've managed to get through um childhood completely unscathed but i think the i think the key thing is is that the more that we know about aces the more you're able to help deal with your own but you're also able to help stop them from proliferating on generationally like we were talking about um and there's ways obviously i mean we can talk about how how we might go about like promoting repair but um but in terms of being being aware of it i'm interested what do you think do you do you think we're inherently aware of what our own aces are or do you think sometimes we don't we don't know Children don't know, I don't think. I think because they accept things for how they are often. But as adults, I wonder if we we shift. I think we we survive. And, and when we know that something bad has happened to us, I witness it all the time where people will create a narrative that minimizes that because to minimize it makes it less of a threat. So, for example, uh, there might be somebody who's witnessed um, lots of arguing at home but they would say, oh, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. I just used to go and sit in my room and watch TV. So I actually got time to watch TV, which I wouldn't have if the, my parents weren't arguing. So there's mm. sort of like a positive reframing, which at the time as a child was probably it's very you, helpful yeah, um, yeah. As, a, as a sort of survival strategy. But as an adult, it's sort of that that there's been a lack of acknowledgement about what that really meant. Um, and sometimes the mind hides things from us for a reason, you know, because as as we said, we're first and foremost here to survive so i think and we know even more so from that now don't we that there's new kind of research which has come out recently which i think is really interesting which is that we when we're in extremely stressed states or we're or we're subject to extremely traumatic events like you know domestic abuse or violence taking place our brain actually floods our our body with uh, vasosuppressants and i think think it's called diorphin but it's a type of um it's a it's a suppressant that actually affects our memory systems so that we actually sort of disconnect our conscious we disconnect that from our sort of conscious state and i think it's because it's to help us continue to function so we don't shut down so you might have found that sometimes people talk about when they've been bereaved they didn't cry you know, they didn't cry at a funeral, they didn't cry when it happened. And then that happens maybe, you know, three, four months later, all of a sudden something changes or the floodgates open. I think it's our, it's what you were saying, it's our way of keeping ourselves safe. It's that survival instinct all the time, isn't it? 
disconnect away from that from that shock state or that shock experience so that you don't you don't fall apart i i definitely agree with that and i think what what whilst on a conscious level we might be suppressing something or or on a subconscious level we might be pushing something away it inevitably comes out in our behaviors so for example you might find that you're hyper vigilant you know you might find that you're one of these people that's just constantly can't sit still um and even when the doors are locked and the the lights are down and there's chilled out music playing at home uh, you know for some reason you feel fidgety or or you know the slightest noise gets you sort of activated um and i know that there's some theories around that in terms of what's happening in the the nervous system in that moment because as a child if your if your nervous system has been activated all the time and you and you've not been familiar with a with a calm state and regulation so I think, yeah, I so think you were, so you've been reading a book recently, haven't you, on polyvagal theory? Yes, yeah, and and about our, our vagus nerve, you know that tenth, tenth, yeah, cranial nerve, you know, which is connected to our heart, our digestive system, our lungs. You know, when we're in that excited state, you can feel it yourself, can't you? When you're when you're losing your you're losing your cool. But I also think it's a bit more. It can be even more than just on that physiological level of feeling hyperstimulated. It can be about why we might continuously sabotage the relationships that we have with people that we could potentially have meaningful relationships with because we're constantly protecting ourselves from getting hurt or being in a position where we make ourselves vulnerable because yeah. that puts you back into that that ugly place again doesn't it of where you felt powerless it's about power i think sometimes with the young people is that they often don't they often are in a powerless kind of place to be able to control what's going on around them so they do whatever they can to cope. And the sad thing is if you've survived um, adverse childhood experiences into adulthood, the chances are that you will gravitate towards a relationship that replicates the one that you had as a child because it's familiar and you know how to stay safe in it. Whereas to step outside of that and do something, you're sort of stuck in a bit of a trap because your your mind and body is saying, do everything to keep yourself safe. Mm. So i.e. don't do something that's unfamiliar because that's risky. Um, I know this relationship is uh, either unkind, abusive or dysfunctional, but actually, do you know what? You know how to manage this because you've managed it before. And that might not be happening on a conscious level, but the amount of times I sit with people and they're like, you know, I just keep ending up with this this type of person that's really unkind to me and it's just a cycle and I just feel like it's inevitable. But at the same time, the thought of being with somebody who treats me well, just I don't know how I'd handle that. And that feels yeah, that's like that cliche of like having a, having, you know, being attracted to a bad, a bad boy. Yeah. Where that, where does that come from? Yeah, you know, well, I think we know now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you just said it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so there's some really interesting things there, and I think um, uh, could we talk a little bit more about attachment theory? Because I know I know we've um, we've covered the aces now, and I think I'd like to come back to that just before we finish about what can we do as adults to sort of help children with with um, reducing adverse childhood experiences. And I think awareness is certainly a, a big factor in that, but there might be some more practical things that we could do. Um, but moving it into the impact that these things can have on us as adults. Mm. You mentioned attachment theory. I gave a book recommendation the other day, um, a book called Attached, which kind of breaks mm. down attachment theory into a very sort of layman's terms. Mm. But 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 you you tell us what is attachment theory and what are the main attachment styles so attachment attachment theory was a term that was um 
John Bowlby was one of the earliest researchers in that field. It's quite an aged, an aged theory, but it, it's still incredibly relevant. I think today, I think it's we've we, we've developed it with our understanding of neuroscience. But basically, attachment is, in simple terms, the synchronous bond that is created between a caregiver and their offspring or their young person that they're looking after and we in order for when somebody is what we call securely attached they tend to be able to feel emotionally regulated they feel safe they feel calm they're able to go out and explore into the world and have meaningful relationships with peers that in time develop into might develop into you know relationships or sexual relationships you know long-term relationships and they our early attachment relationship is fundamentally our blueprint for what comes later. That's the theory. When children are insecurely attached, we see three main types. So we look at ambivalent attachment, we look at avoidant attachment, and we look at disorganized. Disorganized attachment is typically the rarest form of insecure attachment, and it's the one that the one I suppose that has coined some of the um, most sort of research in the literature. So if you look at like the work of Michael Rutter, um, Professor Michael Rutter, um, he's done, you know, decades of research on deprivation. So you look at the original sort of Romanian orphanage studies where children have been left to cry themselves to sleep at night or where they haven't been changed. They nobody has come to soothe them. They haven't been held. And they are, they're almost in that kind of frozen state. That's the, the area. But what we see most of the time is, I would say, probably either avoidant or ambivalent. So an avoidant attachment style in a young person would look like that they are often happy to get involved with focusing on a task, so something that they might be asked to do, but they are um, avoidant of the relationship with an adult so that they don't, they don't want to connect with that person because... For example, if we're, we're talking about that they might have internalized through their internal working models, that term that we use, that adults are not to be trusted, that they are um, inconsistent, that they are um, people who are going to hurt them, why would you want to have a relationship with, with why would you put yourself in that risky place where somebody is going to do that to you? So we call that an avoidant attachment style. The other style that we have is something called ambivalent. So an ambivalent attachment style is where the young person tends to be overly clingy or overly attached sometimes to either a caregiver or a partner. And that would be that they want that attention all the time, all the time. And they'll do anything possible to draw that attention in. So they often, when, you know, when I see kids in school, sometimes it might be a kid that does not want to do what their teacher is telling them to do. They do not want to do the, the work. They're not interested in the task unless it has a real hook, you know, something that's really interesting to them. But generally, they don't want to get involved in work, but they love adult-orientated attention because any attention, regardless of what it is, to them might be perceived as being good. So if you think about this, this is the, the, interesting, the interesting dichotomy, I suppose, that we have in school is, which children in a classroom of 30 get the most attention from the teacher? Yeah, they'll be the ones that want the attention from the teacher because they yeah. they'll yeah, so do the what kid, they need to do to get the attention. Yeah, so the kid that's sitting, doing their work, being way, really well regulated, scribbling away, 
not asking lots of questions, not bothering their peers, is the one that the teacher will often pay the less, least attention to. The child that is acting up, that's throwing things, that's, you know, that is acting out all the time is the is the one that that adult will focus on the most. So it doesn't matter whether the attention that that young person is getting is positive or negative, they're getting attention. So that ambivalent attachment style is where kids are drawn to wanting adult involvement all the time. And that can be sometimes because they haven't had it or that they, it's a bit like, you know, when they, they get a little drop of it, a little taste of it, it's like, oh, this is great, but then it's taken away all the time. So it's not a consistent, it's not consistent. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of researchers, I'm sure you're probably more aware of, of, of how those early attachment patterns then are transferred into adulthood. So we sometimes see, you know, adults who are really difficult to reach, like you sometimes make impassioned pleas to, or you try and, you know, try and you know tap into their feelings but they're somebody that keeps you at arm's length all the time or won't allow you to no matter how hard you try to develop a close relationship with um it's really common to see somebody who has, who's got this very and i don't like the word but it, it's the most known word like needy mm. um sort of very clingy attachment style because that's how they got their attention as a child was to cling was to sort of constantly cry out for attention mm. um it's often the case that those people will be attracted to somebody that has the opposite attachment style so they might be yeah. very avoidant so you can often see this sort of like uh, the language might be confused doesn't it <laughs> yeah the language might be you know it was great in the first few months and and we just were just like it was like fireworks were going off we were talking about kids and marriage and then further down the line you know now he's saying that he wants space or she wants hot, space cold. from me yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like hot cold because actually what what's true for both styles is that both styles want connection both styles want intimacy but both are fearful uh, one's fearful of losing it and one's fearful of kind of being uh hurt and and consumed by it so you end up with this sort of this dance that happens and it can be sustained and, the, and that cycle for for the people in it can become addictive well, I, I like that word a dance it's a bit like a dance isn't it it's like yeah. it's it's a sustained continuous cycle of yeah until you punctuate that cycle with something people that's why i was saying before about the relationships that people get themselves in or sabotage those relationships is because they're perpetuating that attachment relationship that they, they probably on some level are not aware of. Sure. And that's when it comes to the healing part. And, and I suppose this is a nice sort of summary, really, because understanding what happened to us in our early relationships and what happened to us as children can give us the awareness of how we've come to relate to the world around us and to the people within that world and to the close relationships that we have. And once we've got that awareness, then we can set about healing from that past trauma and that's the big part in you know we've we've done an extensive piece i think about understanding what is developmental trauma mm -hmm. um and i suppose the rest of the series of podcasts and 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 the work that we're doing at the moment as therapists and everything else you work with children and i can totally understand why um but i think there is hope Which out is there challenging in and of itself yeah of course yeah. of course yeah. it is and i think you know it is important to try and get it at the source and 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 make adjustments there but there is so much that we can do as adults 
the big message that I want to get out there is there's nothing to be ashamed of about your history because even if your parents mistreated you or your caregivers weren't there for you and you've experienced developmental trauma, that's not your fault. Um, And once you can start looking at it through the lens of compassion and empowerment, then you can go, oh, this is what happened to me. And now I can set about healing that so that I don't keep finding myself in difficult relationships and I can actually have a a more fulfilling life. Um, Yeah. Compassion, yeah, because it's about, we often talk about compassion to other people, but this is really about compassion towards yourself, isn't it? About being kind to yourself and actually thinking, I often say that to young people that I'm doing therapeutic work with, they'll say, you do know this is not your fault. It's not your fault. And I often will say, I need you to hear this. You might not believe it, but I need you to hear this. This isn't your fault. You know, you, you, you are... You know, regardless of what you be, regardless of what you feel like you've done, regardless of what your behaviours have been, you, I am a strong believer that we are products of, you know, our environment. We're products of of which is a which is a like a lottery, isn't it? It's a it's a job. We don't know what we're going to be born into and what environment we are going to have to face. And even within the best will in the world and the the sort of the you think you might have, you know, everything stacked in your favour, things can still things can still go awry and that's okay you know it's it it's like it's okay not it's okay to not be okay you know it's just that that's the first step really isn't it about therapeutics or about healing and about repair is just i think therapeutics for me or are always about a readiness to change and i think the first step of readiness is actually just saying to yourself it's okay that i'm not feeling all right or it's okay that something it's not okay that obviously awful things have happened to me but it's okay that i'm coping with it in the best way that i can and i'm 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 open to talking about it i think that is the first step isn't it it's just admitting that maybe you want to feel differently definitely i think healing work is hard enough but when you Mm -hmm. compound it with shame it makes it very difficult it does Um, so that's that feels like a nice sort of place to sort of start summarizing so um there's going to be people listening thinking oh my goodness what can we do for children <laughs> how can we how can we help minimize these adverse childhood experiences now i've got all this awareness where would you direct them what would you sort of say that people can do if they if they have a sense of wanting to do something practical and meaningful or just to educate themselves so looking at so there's um so public health england for example and public health wales you know if you if you type in adverse childhood experiences into google you know there's some great some great video links on there about um, there was one I watched recently, it was from Public Health Wales, which was about a young person talking about his experience of living with ACEs and what he felt like his later life had kind of become, but how he, he was able to change that trajectory by being aware of those those um, experiences that he had. Um, I think that it's it's really worth looking into, you know, looking into some early reading if you've got children, you know, or even if you've got, you know, if your kids are teenagers or, you know, you know, you've got nieces or nephews or just friends of friends that have got kids. It's always worth looking into, you know, um, books around attachment. uh, Margot Sunderland stuff is lovely. Um, there's a great book by Sue Gerhardt, which is called Why Love Matters, you know, how how affection shapes a baby's brain. You could read things around about this is a great book. This is one I love. It's uh, working with relational and developmental trauma in children and adolescents. Great for practitioners, but also great for anybody that works with children that you think might have encountered adversity. Um, I think it's about just being having been more mindful about um 
actually just what developmental trauma is and how it is separate from post-traumatic stress that we don't think of trauma in those terms all the time that actually our lived experience can be um tricky you know at, at any point in our lives and what are the things that we can do to help protect ourselves so as adults i think that we get very good at learning to um, pick up on things that make us feel better so it might be a case of you know a lot of adults you know like a glass of wine but it might be that they take themselves to a yoga class they take themselves out for a walk you take the dog out you have a nice meal with somebody you care about you listen to a piece of music these are all things which help soothe us and the things that help soothe you will also help soothe children a lot of the time so you know helping them be in a quiet space helping to sort of help regulate and keep them soothed and calm i actually think when you know you were saying about polyvagal theory and that whole thing around keeping calm that is fundamentally what it is we know the more that children feel soothed the better their outcomes are something that simple if you feel soothed you feel safe and if you feel safe you're more likely to be able to listen to be able to learn to be able to um, focus on learning you know all those things come simply from feeling safe and feeling in this kind of calm relaxed place so the more that we can do to promote that for young people and ourselves is um is the better and you talked earlier about protective factors um mm. and i think you know you said that you know we might have young people in our lives and i suppose mm. that's where the role of schools and our roles as aunts uncles grandparents mm. family members we can all have you know we might not be able to directly impact what's happening for that child at home but actually yeah. if when they're if when they're with us or around us or in our presence we are modeling behaviors of uh, of calm modeling and, behaviors yeah, of regulation and, and staying free of judgment as well because you know uh, brenny brown says in her talk around she talks around empathy and she said you know part of working with people who you know, part of working with young people so often is staying free of judgment, which is difficult, she says, you know, because we enjoy it so much. But is that being in that place where um, you say, you know, that's really difficult or that's really hard or I can imagine you think of the young people sometimes, you know, even silly things like they build a Lego tower that another kid comes and trashes. And they've spent a long time building that Lego tower and instead of saying things like we use that at least all the time well you know at least you can build another one that doesn't make you feel better the empathy it's about i think empathy is so powerful it works with adults but it's certainly applicable to working with young people the more that we are aware of how to be empathetic um the better we are equipped to being able to understand because to to be empathetic you know means staying free of judgment but it also means um connecting with something that might be uncomfortable for you you know that you're basically saying i get it I, I i get that you are feeling disappointed i understand that you must be feeling angry i get that you're sad and that's okay and you know you're not trying to fix it i often say you know adults and teachers want to fix things all the time for, for their children and for kids and i said sometimes you don't want to be fixed you just want to be heard and maybe that's a nice point to kind of as, as part of our summary is, you know, sometimes kids just need to be heard, but not fixed, because that's a much larger 
issue you know and rarely you know rarely does that an empathic response ever you know is it ever going to be something that you respond to them is going to make them feel better what makes them feel better is connection and it's about it's about valuing our relationships and never underplaying actually how important relationships are we know why you know kids don't do well we know why they drop out of school we know why you know they they struggle but what we so rarely talk about is the value of relationships and human connection so i think i think the more that we can do that um the better you will be at preventing some of those ugly things that we talked about that was a, a perfect summary and i suppose i'll just add to it that i'm i've got hope that people like you are in the world working yeah. with our young people and you, and you. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i'm kind of picking up the 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 aftermath if you like um but and there is hope there as well but it's really good that um that, that this is out there and i think uh, over the next few years it's just going to get more and more attention i hope I think so. I think um so. because it makes sense and it's got such a, a big impact so thank you for for sharing all that you've shared it's it's thank clear you that you're very passionate yeah i do um, and i feel like we've opened up loads so there's probably going to be um all sorts of questions coming through after that so maybe in the future you'd be kind yeah, and yeah, maybe yeah, a sure. few months down the line hop back on and, and answer yeah, some of those questions because i think we've we've opened a lot um and and done some of it justice but of course it's a massive topic so we could probably talk all oh, afternoon yeah, yeah. um but thank you very much and um i will post the links that we talked about to some of the information that you've you've shared and some of the books that you've recommended in the Lovely. podcast bio okay cool take care thank you i hope you enjoyed that podcast it's clear that Craig is really passionate about what he does and is very knowledgeable too, so I hope that there are some takeaways for you in there. For me, there was a message of hope that there are people like Craig in the world working with our young people, but also that you can heal too. You know, I guess our minds tell us stories, but the truth about who we are and what we've been through comes out in our relationships and our behaviours. We're going to be listening to different people over the next few weeks from different walks of life. I've got some personal stories coming up in the podcast series. I've also got different therapists coming on to talk about their modes of therapy. So yeah, share, like, comment, let your friends know about this, let your family know. I think there's some really interesting people that need to be heard and deserve to be heard. So like, comment, share. And if you've got any questions or you'd like to feature on the podcast, then reach out to me too. Um, much love as always. Speak to you soon.